nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American. Not to target one, but he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. Season 2, Episode 18. You got served. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6th, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction for this week's episode was provided by the 4th January 6th Committee public hearing and was the audio-video recorded testimony of Ruby Freeman, the mother of a full-time Fulton County election worker and herself brought in temporarily to help with the 2020 uh, election campaign after she and her daughter uh, and other members of the family suffered death threats and abuse at the hands of uh, crazed Trumpists who were inspired by lies by Rudy Giuliani and the OAN so-called News Network. That was, I think, the most powerful and compelling testimony that we heard. The testimony from Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman with regard to the lies that were told and the price that they, ordinary Americans, ordinary election workers, trying to do the right thing in the midst of a pandemic, had to pay through no fault of their own by targeting at the hands of the President of the United States and Rudy Giuliani. So obviously, this is yet another episode in response to the public hearings of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. This one on the occasion, of course, of the fourth hearing. The hearing dedicated to the campaign by Trump and his associates to pressure state officials into overturning the election outcomes in the respective states. That hearing, of course, took place on June 21st at 1 o'clock p.m., and the next hearing, the fifth hearing, will take place on Thursday, June 23rd at 3 o'clock p.m. Now, this hearing will be the one that was originally scheduled for Wednesday, June 15th, and will focus on efforts by Trump to corruptly pressure the acting attorney general and the Department of Justice to subvert electoral democracy in the United States by fraudulently undermining public confidence in the safety and security of the 2020 presidential election. Now, I've been skipping the tally of new arrests and court outcomes for these quick reaction episodes in response to the committee hearings, but the last episode to feature the numbers was Season 2, Episode 15, which I put on June 13th, so it seems as though a sufficient interval has passed to warrant doing, yet again, uh, a, a number... Uh, numbers segment in this episode, just so we don't fall too far behind. So here are the numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 833 individuals charged, an increase of 8 since the last episode. 
there have been a total of 382 indictments, an increase of one since our last tally. Four deceased, no change. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 321 convictions, an increase of seven since our last tally. And 152 sentencings, an increase of ten since the last tally. So, a couple of episodes ago, I did a little bit of a profile on Capitol Hill chiropractor David Walls Kaufman. And I had some questions about why it took so long to arrest a suspect who had been identified over a year before and who was involved in a tussle with Officer Jeff Smith, who himself wound up suffering a brain injury that was a proximate cause of death by suicide, which was ruled a service-connected death even though it's a certain that Walls Kaufman wasn't the one who inflicted the injury himself. Nonetheless, the fact that he was involved with Officer Smith raises his profile significantly. Now, as regular listeners will know, this is a little bit of a seminar. I rather enjoy the prospect of having people tell me why I'm wrong and how I'm wrong in exactly the ways in which the, the various uh, stupid things I say on this podcast uh, can be debunked. So. You know, again, you won't get self-debunking most places, just part of the value added. And again, it's part of the iterative process of social science. So, um, I, you know, again, it's an, it's an idea that I would like to normalize, right? We should all practice saying, I could be wrong, and I'm look, open to looking at new evidence. So, uh, I'd like to give a shout-out to prolific sedition hunter Bigfoot, the open-source intelligence yeti, who rather helpfully put forward some data on the subject of why it's taking so long to arrest people such as Walls Kaufman, even though he's a relatively high-profile defendant. Uh, Bigfoot went ahead and did the math on just where we are in the course of charges with regard to January 6th, and they did some calculations. So they tallied the number of people arrested, plus the number of people who are insiders, which is to say persons identified by sedition hunters as having been inside the Capitol, whether they've been identified or not, uh, people who are wanted, people who are suspected of property damage, people who committed assault on a federal officer, allegedly, or again, you know, there's pictures of them doing it, whatever, people who are uh, suspected of committing assaults on the media, Tallying all that up, and then subtracting the uh, number of minors and duplicates, and arriving at 3,551. So that's the overall known or suspected universe of cases of people who have been identified, and includes currently charged individuals. So that means that there are 2,719 individuals remaining that we know of who have yet to be charged. And so, while I express some consternation as to why an obviously important defendant such as Walls Kaufman took a year to be charged, this sheds some light on the workload issue at the Department of Justice. They are simply overwhelmed. One of the implicit assumptions in our legal system is that the government has vast resources to investigate and charge defendants. But January 6th has showed that that's simply not true, or at least not with regard to the, the task at hand. 
if you do the math more broadly, it's been 76 weeks since the January 6th attack. So with 832 arrests so far, this means that there have been an average of 10.947 arrests, arrests per week. So if there are really 2,719 individuals remaining in the possible universe of defendants, that means it's going to take 248.37 weeks to arrest all the possible suspects, which is another uh, 4.77 years. So, you know, just call it four years, eight months. So, again, that's at the current rate. At the current rate of arrests, it's going to be nearly five years. So in that context, yeah, it's pretty understandable why someone like Wallace Kaufman might take a year. They're going to be arresting similar defendants years from now. You may remember that the Department of Justice is seeking to hire an additional 131 additional attorneys to help with these cases. So if approved, that might do something to expedite the process. But remember, that was part of their budget request in March. And it literally takes uh, an, an act of Congress, not, not just to hire new attorneys in the Department of Justice, but really actually to create any position, requires an act of Congress. Not to fill a position or to hire someone, but again, to create a position, create, you know, that requires an act of Congress. So it's going to be a while, even if they get help. Hopefully help will be on the way, but nonetheless... It shows, you know, the explanation is obvious. Thanks again to Bigfoot for doing the numbers. Numbers which I, by the way, I was, I was fully aware, but again, um, kind of, you know, sometimes they think, well, shouldn't they do some kind of triage, right? Shouldn't they prioritize some defendants uh, over others? You know, this guy is a chiropractor. He's close to Capitol Hill. Maybe he's connected to certain members of Congress. He's cracking their backs. Who knows? Um, but again, that there are other people who have... Similarly high-profile charges uh, that, you know, could be levied against them who have been identified and they haven't been arrested either. So, yeah. Again, thanks to Bigfoot for, for pointing that out, which ought to have been obvious. Um, and I know there are, there are a lot of people who are like, well, America is doing nothing. Well, they are doing the best that they can. And I think that we think that, you know, they have infinite resources in the Department of Justice. That is simply not true. And, uh... While, you know, we all like to watch a good police procedural, um, that's just, you know, that's not a thing. They, they're not ready to take on 3,500 suspects all at once. All right, so without further ado, let's crack on. The fourth hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack commenced at 1 o'clock p.m. on Tuesday, June 21st, and lasted for 2 hours and 43 minutes. Now, I should add that this is a little bit of a deviation from the seven-step plan agenda that Liz Cheney has put forward. And so far as this meeting combined step four and step five, you'll remember that originally there were supposed to be seven hearings, and it looked like each hearing was going to uh, involve a different topic. Um, but the, this, you know, stuck to that agenda, uh, except it combined two two different topics in one meeting. And I'll discuss a little bit later on why I think that, that, was, that was done. So, step four. President Trump corruptly pressured state election officials and state legislators to change election results. 
Step 5, President Trump's legal team and other Trump associates instructed Republicans in multiple states to create false electoral states and slates and uh, transmit those slates to Congress and the National Archives. So the fact that they've combined two subjects into one hearing also kind of compounds the bit of a schedule mix-up that occurred when the committee canceled its hearing on Wednesday, June 15th, which was supposed to be about step two. President Trump corruptly plan planned to replace the acting attorney general so that the Department of Justice would support his fake election claims. Now, that hearing will take place on Thursday, June 24th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and will feature the following witnesses. Jeffrey Rosen, former acting attorney general. Richard Donahue, former acting deputy attorney general. And Stephen Engel, former assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. So the sequence is now a bit off. But nonetheless, I don't think that the average uh, viewer is going to notice. Most of them probably didn't pay attention to Liz Cheney's original scheme. So as originally scheduled, the hearings followed events roughly historically. Uh, that's a bit out the window, right? I mean, the things that are happening um, in the, the firing, you know, obviously that bit of stuff with Rosen occurred after uh, some of this other stuff, right? I mean, the, the election fraud narrative, for example, happened way before the stuff where, where they tried to, to fire Rose and then replace him with Clark. There are too many chefs, um, which would be a good episode. I, that would actually be a good good title for that episode. Anyway, so doesn't really matter. Uh, I expect the original order is going to be preserved when it comes to the committee's final report. All right, so let's go to the witness list for the fourth hearing. As always, so far anyway, there are two segments with a short break in the middle and they bring in new witnesses after the first segment. In the first segment, it was Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, Gabriel Sterling, the Chief Operating Officer of the Georgia Secretary of State, and that was the first panel. The second panel was comprised of, of one witness, although this witness's mother was also present. That was Shea Moss, a former election worker in Fulton County, Georgia, i.e. Atlanta, uh, who accompanied, was accompanied, again, by her mother. And her mother had also, of course, been employed as an election worker on a temporary basis, I believe, uh, to assist with the tallying of the votes in the 2020 election. And so the hearing was presided over, as always, by Chairman Benny Thompson of Mississippi and Vice Chair Liz Cheney of Wyoming. The lead presenter at this hearing was Adam Schiff of California, who worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in California before he began his career as an elected official. Now, a lot of the material in this hearing came from the so-called perfect phone call from Donald Trump, which was recorded by Brad Raffensperger on January 2nd, 2021. So much of the hearing in the material hearing evidence uh, wasn't really new. Nonetheless, we learned quite a bit about efforts to pressure state election officials and install fake slates of electors, uh, especially the latter. Now, the fake elector story really broke wide open when the nonprofit American Oversight obtained the fake certifications in March of 2021, over a year ago. 
The states where fraudulent slates of electors were submitted to the National Archives were Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So overall, I think the effort to combine these two topics was successful. Uh, and, you know, again, logically, a lot of these topics bleed into one another. The uh, fake election disinformation stuff is a logical predicate to the fake election scheme, the fake electoral scheme. Um, I was a little disappointed in how they did it. Now, I think that the, the human impact of Moss's testimony and her mother's recorded video testimony can't be understated. I'm always trying to compare what, you know, I think is compelling versus what the average viewer would think is compelling. And, you know, um, some of the basic facts around Moss's case is new. I mean, she's had a court case. This was all reported. Nonetheless, uh, to see her there in person, to see her her mother there in person and also testifying on video. Um, well, they both testified on video as well. Uh, that was very compelling, right? And probably I think that is a thing that hopefully, you know, I would expect to move the needle the most with regard to public opinion, right? Because it is remarkable, uh, as Lady Ruby said, you know, the President of the United States and his proxies, people like Rudy Giuliani most uh, prominently, targeted an individual, two individuals, you know, ordinary people in Atlanta who had did nothing wrong and targeted them for attack by a mob. You know, you kind of see uh, a pattern emerging here. Now, I was a little bit disappointed on the fact that there wasn't more material on the fake electors and the fake electoral certificates. Uh, you could do a whole series of hearings just on that part of the plot alone. Um, now, yeah, I, you know, I wrote this. This is this is my pre-write. Uh, well, not actually, this is the pre-write. This is, you know, an earlier iteration of this, and the facts have changed since I wrote this. About, I'm going to tell you what I wrote at the time. Anyway, uh, I wonder if part of the reason why they didn't spend more time on this part of the story is because the effort to defraud the United States is pretty readily chargeable. There are falsified documents, there's contact between Trump's inner circle, and all the electors in the six states where fraudulent documents were submitted. That's all documented. They're, they created their own document trail. And this whole crime reminds me a bit of uh, Rod Blagojevich's conviction for trying to sell the appointment to the Senate seat that was vacated by Barack Obama when he uh, was elected president. You'll remember that Blagojevich was charged with 20 federal crimes, convicted of 17 uh, of them at his second trial. There was a first trial that was a mistrial. I think they convicted him on one charge. And he was sentenced to 14 years, which was, by the way, of course, ultimately commuted by Donald Trump in, in you know, odd historical irony. You know, one of the last official acts of his presidency. But anyway, there's so many people involved in the fake elector scheme. And there's so many charges that could result. And it makes sense that the committee might want to go into a little bit less detail on this point. That's what I wrote, right? And the reason why, of course, going into less detail on this point is because there might be charges and investigations outstanding. All right, so in between the time that I wrote that and the time that I'm recording this, things have happened. Interesting things. 
really interesting things, which is why I had to change the title of this episode to You Got Served. According to the Washington Post, uh, three individuals received subpoenas from that were served to them by the, the Justice Department. They got the knock on the door from the FBI. They are Michael McDonald, who is the Nevada GOP chair, and James DeGraffenreed, another fake elector. An additional individual identified in the reporting by the Washington Post is one Brad Carver of Georgia. And additionally, there is uh, David Schaefer, who is also of Georgia and the state GOP chair. Uh, there's also Thomas Lane, a Trump attorney uh, who's from the campaign, lives in Virginia, but he worked in the campaign in Arizona and New Mexico. So, in addition to all these people, uh, a number of unidentified Michigan fake electors have also received subpoenas, although it's not known at the current time whether these are related to federal charges or possible state charges. Um, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but they're... The laws in Michigan with regard to the certification of electoral certificates are very specific. They have to be done in this very specific way. And this vulnerability opened the fake Trump electors to state charges as well. Although I think the electors in all six states, the fake electors in all six states, are vulnerable to state charges in all those states. So in light of this development, we can tell several things, right? You know, Merrick Garland didn't just suddenly wake up this morning, you know, and say, oh my gosh, that testimony on Tuesday was so compelling, I think I'm going to do something, right? No. So, it does show a level of coordination, again, which I've talked about before, uh, you know, that Maybe they're talking to one another a little bit, right? Maybe there's, you know, a bit of a call and response, a two-track parallel investigation. What's significant here, of course, is these are really VIPs. These are people with direct links to the Trump campaign. These are people who have been contacted by Trump attorneys, such as Thomas Lane, and told what to do, provided these various documents for them to fill out, given instructions on how to comport themselves, given instructions that they ought to meet in secrecy. So these people are extremely vulnerable. This is chargeable. There are fake documents. They are, these people are not the legitimate slates of electors that they pretended to be, as I'll talk about with regard to the, the committee testimony. So that is, I think, part of the reason why this was given short shrift. There's no need to move the needle on public opinion here. Um, the, the Department of Justice is, in fact, doing something. And they're doing something in such a way that they are going to roll up this conspiracy, hopefully, rather quickly. I mean, again, one of the nice things about this particular crime is it involves signing your name to a document. So these are not individuals who uh, are, you know, impossible to find. Although, interestingly, one of them, they actually weren't able to find them at this point. So I wonder how many of these people are going to be on the run for police. So you'll remember, of course, that you go back to the first episode of this second season. One of my theories was that, hey, after the hearings, we can start expecting people being charged. This is consistent with that. They haven't been charged. They've been subpoenaed. Nonetheless, this kind of exceeds some of my expectations with regard to, A, the level of coordination 
between this, you know, two-track parallel investigation where you've got the Department of Justice handling these low-level officials and then most of the basic investigative work being done by the committee itself, and then B, uh, the, just the timetable, right? It's going to take time for this investigation to move forward. However, again, this particular crime is pretty easy to prove. And there are elements of the crime, you know, it's like, well, you have to know that they were committing fraud. They wrote down that they were supposed to meet in secret. These people met in secret. They testified about meeting in secret. Oh, and guess what? There's 84 of them. They only need a few of them to flip and roll over and hand over the rest of them. And the rest of them can roll over and hand over the attorneys. And the attorneys can roll over and hand over people like, let's say, I don't know, Rudy Giuliani himself and possibly Trump. So I don't know how you know intimately involved Trump was with the planning of this, but you know all we gotta do at some point, or the whole Department of Justice has to do, is to show that he ordered, he set this process in motion, and that is a conspiracy count. So again, these are people who are seeking to defraud, defraud the United States. The presidency of the United States is a thing of value, just as Barack Obama's Senate seat was a thing of value, and there's this is certainly a rather large conspiracy deliberately conducted in secret, deliberately conducted in violation of state and federal law. So this is a huge development in the January 6th case because it's a direct link between uh, the, the effort to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power and the Trump administration itself, right? This isn't some random guy from Arkansas bringing a whole bunch of Molotov cocktails in his pickup truck to the Capitol. You know, some, some random hermit who watches OAN and gets angry all the time. This is uh, elected officials, strong Trump supporters, political activists, being mobilized by the Trump campaign itself, by attorneys who used documents and, you know, took notes on a seditious conspiracy uh, and did this, you know, well-organized effort that was, you know, from coast to coast, right? You know, from Nevada and Mexico to East Coast states like uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania. So, you know, we'll see. But easily, again, easily chargeable. We don't have to, there's not a lot of mens rea questions here. You know, the intent is evident through behavior. And the behavior was uh, highly sus, right? You know, th there's a normal procedure that you go through as an elector in order to uh, fulfill your obligations as a duly certified and appointed elector to the Electoral College. You don't meet in secret. You know, and it's interesting, like some of them, you know, um, you know, met in secret, some of them took videos, some of them took those videos down, I mean, all kinds of different circumstances. But if I were one of those 84 people and I hadn't been served yet, you know, I might pack a bag, call an attorney or something because it's probably only a matter of time. So those are my broad brush impressions of the hearing. Now I'll get a little more granular, working from my notes and proceeding from start to finish. I'm going to spend a little more time on the things that are new or newsworthy, and hopefully hit a few points that haven't garnered attention yet. So after introductory remarks, the chair and the vice chair hand the hearing over to Adam Schiff. Now, Schiff did a really good job, I think, of basically summarizing 
this part of the testimony and bring it all together. He outlined the behavior that, uh, again, focusing very much on Trump, uh, that constituted this part of the effort to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. First, Trump tried to stop the counting of the mail-in ballots. Then he tried to prevent state officials from certifying the results. He then filed five dozen frivolous lawsuits, none of which changed any outcome in any meaningful way. He then attempted to pressure individual state legislatures to call a session to decertify Biden's victory, to declare Trump the winner, and to appoint Trump electors to the Electoral College. The Trump campaign then, quote, assembled groups of individuals in key battleground states and got them to call themselves electors, created phony certificates associated with each of these fake electors, and then transmitted these certificates to Washington and to the Congress to be counted during the joint session of Congress on January 6th. Schiff then noted that, with regard to this last part of the scheme, according to a ruling by District Judge David Carter, quote, former President Trump and others likely violated multiple federal laws by engaging in this scheme, including a conspiracy to defraud the United States, end quote. So that tells you right there, this is important, as it's the only part of the January 6th series of cases wherein a federal judge has already ruled that it's likely that Trump and his circle engage in a felonious conspiracy, which, of course, I've discussed in earlier episodes. Schiff also quoted Judge Carter's observation that the Trumpists were engaged in, quote, a coup in search of a legal theory, end quote. This language from Carter uh, nicely parallels the observation later on in the hearing that Bowers attributed to Rudy Giuliani that, quote, We've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence, end quote. So we've got theories with no evidence, we've got coups in search of legal theories. So I thought that was a very effective introduction by Schiff. Uh, it presented the pressure campaign on state officials and the fake electoral scheme as all of a piece. One concerted program to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, detailing different stages within steps four and five, of Cheney's seven-part plan theory of the case. Schiff then turned to questioning the Speaker of the Arizona State House, Rusty Bowers. Now, fairly early on in his questioning, Bowers made an interesting reference that's rather easy to overlook. When asked why he thought that the Trumpists asked what, what they asked him to do would violate the, his oath to uphold the Constitution, Bowers said this, quote, Once it was given to the people, as in Bush v. Gore, Illustrated by the Supreme Court, it becomes a fundamental right of the people, end quote. Uh, to which he is, of course, referring to the right to elect the president. So, it's worth noting that that's not what Bush v. Gore did. The point of Bush v. Gore was always simply to secure a Republican victory in the 2000 presidential race, which is why the court said it was a non-presidential ruling. They wanted to be at liberty to rule in the opposite direction if the wind ever changed and, you know, the ruling could be used to stop a recount that Republicans thought they might win, right? Nonetheless, by the way, Bush v. Gore actually has been cited uh, several times by other courts 
and is in fact being treated as non-precedential, despite the fact that you know the Supreme Court wanted to hedge their bets. Nonetheless, the Bush v. Gore decision did include language that actually does seem to apply here, although Bowers doesn't explicitly point that out. Uh, quote, the right to vote is protected in more than the initial allocation of the franchise. Equal protection is pl- applies as well to the manner of its exercise. Having once granted the right to vote on equal terms, the state may not, by later arbitrary and disparate treatment, value one person's vote over that of another. End quote. So Bauer's invocation of Bush v. Gore points to an interesting point that I actually hadn't considered. The challenges that Trump posed to the swing states that he lost narrowly, and only the swing states that he lost narrowly, would pose exactly the same kind of 14th Amendment equal protection issues that the court used to arbitrarily award the presidency to George Bush in 2000. So I thought it's worth noting that no one ever seems to mention Bush v. Gore in the context of January 6th. Uh, That may be some kind of mark of how universally reviled Bush v. Gore is, and it's interesting that the Supreme Court has actually tried to avoid deciding presidential elections ever since. That might be the, you know, the implicit other side, flip side of the coin with regard to, you know, the the non-presidential nature of that decision. You know, an implicit promise like, okay, well, we'll we'll hand it to, you know, uh, Bush just this one time. We're we're not going to do it in the future. We promise. And, And so far, I mean, they have actually seemed to live up to that implicit promise. Although with the current majority of the court, one never knows. There's also an interesting uh, exchange, I thought, between uh, Schiff and Bowers that really is kind of damning, right? And shows that, you know, Giuliani had nothing. He knew he had nothing. But yet he was calling around to various state officials, such as Bowers, claiming to have all kinds of evidence, and yet failing to produce it. And by the way, I'd like to mention at this point... um, that unlike many of the other participants in this hearing with regard to the, uh, the members of the committee uh, who are reading, um, Adam Schiff isn't, right? Now, he, I think he does have notes that he's looking at, a list of questions that he wants to use, but he's very much speaking extemporaneously, and I thought he was very effective, right? I mean, that goes to his experience as a prosecutor for the federal government uh, as an uh, assistant U.S. attorney in California. Anyway, I will play the clip. During that conversation, uh, did um, you will ask Mr. Giuliani for proof of these allegations of fraud that he was making? On multiple occasions, yes. And when you asked him uh, for evidence of this fraud, what did he say? He said that they did have proof. I asked him, do you have names? For example, you have 200,000 illegal immigrants, some large number. Of five or six thousand dead people, etc. I said, Do you have their names? Yes. Will you give them to me? Yes. The president interrupted and said, Give the man what he needs, Rudy. He said, I, I will. And that happened on at least two occasions, that interchange in the conversation. So Mr. Giuliani was claiming in the call that there were hundreds of thousands of undocumented people and thousands of dead people who had uh, purportedly voted in the election? 
Yes. Uh, and you asked him for evidence of that? I did. Uh, and did he ever receive, did you ever receive from him that evidence uh, either during the call, after the call, or to this day? Never. So I thought that was pretty effective, right? I mean, again, he's asking them to, you know, he wants Bowers to call the Arizona legislature into a special session, uh, which Bowers can't do. He doesn't actually have the authority to do that on his own, and it requires a supermajority, and he can't actually do it. And moreover, he doesn't actually want to do it. Uh, and he's asked at least twice for this supposed list of names, and he's talking to Trump, and he's talking to Giuliani. Giuliani says that this list exists, and Bowers is saying that he wants it, and he's never seen it. He did never saw it then. You know, it's been a couple of years now, right? Still hasn't seen it, because guess what? It doesn't exist. And by the way, there is this idea that there are, you know, they keep repeating this lie, that there are hundreds of thousands of uh, undocumented people who are voting in American elections. Now, I've personally registered hundreds, if not thousands, of voters, and I assure you that if you go door-to-door -to -door and knock on people's doors and ask them if they want to register to vote, and you've got voter registration forms, um, they, you know, people who are undocumented immigrants will tell you. They will say, no, no thank you, I am not eligible to vote, I am not a citizen of this country, and they will, you know, bid you a nice day and you can go away, right? There is nothing that interests a undocumented person less than attracting the attention of the government by filling out a, you know, a form uh, that someone tries to hand them to get them to register to vote. That's just registration, much less actually voting, right? I mean, it happens in a few instances. But this is not a common thing, and anyone who's actually engaged in voter registration drives would know that this is not a thing that happens. You know, people don't register to vote fraudulently because they don't want to, you know, if they have uh, an immigration status that doesn't warrant them voting, uh, they're not going to, you know, try to vote. I, the only time I had a foreign national ask me about registering to vote was someone from Spain, I believe. Uh, and they said, you know, well, uh, in Spain, uh, in the EU, if you are a, a member of an EU nation, if you're from an EU nation, you're living in a different EU nation, uh, you can nonetheless vote in local elections. And so I explained North Carolina election law to this person uh, and, you know, went on my way. Um, but, you know, again, there's... You know, as, as someone who's trying to register voters, I don't have an interest, uh, you know, doing it on a voluntary basis. Now, uh, people who do it on a paid basis uh, do have an interest, right? They're, they're oftentimes paid on a piecework basis. Um, but interestingly, Republicans are the ones who tend to do those kind of things. Uh, many of the Democratic campaigns, most, if not most of them, uh, are done on a volunteer basis. And no one in this step of the process has any incentive to either, you know, to register or encourage illegal voting. The penalties are such, you know, that it's like the marginal benefit uh, is is so small, right? I mean, if you were trying to register people to vote, you're much better served by going on, moving on to the next 
legal person, right? You know, the, the kid who's just turned 18, the person who's moved here from another state, and registering them to vote than you are by trying to persuade someone who's undocumented to register to vote and to, to vote illegally. It's just not a thing that actually happens. And part of this is just ignorance of the system. The people who make these claims have never actually registered anyone to vote. Bowers also testified about contact he had with Andy Biggs. Again, this is another link between members of Congress and the attempt to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. I know we're focused like a laser on uh, the Trump administration. Nonetheless, there is the Sedition Caucus, and the members of the Sedition Caucus, I believe, played a key role in every phase of the effort to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power, and Andy Biggs is a key member of it, and he directly contacted Rusty Bowers in this regard. Administration of the state of Arizona. Yes, sir. Did you also receive a call from U.S. Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona on the morning of January 6th? I did. And what did Mr. Biggs ask you to do? I believe that was the day that the, the vote was occurring to each state to have certification or to declare the, the certification of the electors. And he asked if I would sign on both to a letter that had been sent from my state and or that I would support the decertification of the electors and I said I would not. Mr. Speaker, on December 4th, 2020, shortly after your meeting with Rudy Giuliani and other allies of President Trump, you released a statement publicly addressing, quote, calls for the legislature to overturn the 2020 certified election results. The statement is very straightforward in explaining the, quote, breathtaking request, unquote, made by representatives of President Trump, quote, that the Arizona legislature overturn the certified results of last month's election and deliver the state's electoral college votes to President Trump, unquote. Why did you believe, as you wrote in this statement, that the rule of law forbid you from doing what President Trump and his allies wanted you to do? Representative, I'm sorry, I should be saying, Mr. Chairman, Representative Schiff, the, um, there's two sides to the answer. One is, what am I allowed to do? And what am I forbidden to do? We have no legal pathway, both in state law, nor to my knowledge in federal law, for us to execute such a request. So, you know, I probably don't agree with uh, Mr. Bowers on very much, but I thought he was a pretty effective witness in that regard. Uh, the president asked him to do something that he wasn't empowered to do. He felt it violated his oath to the Constitution, and he didn't do it. Now, Schiff also pointed out that the, there are these alternate slates of electors, of course. Again, um, you know, and that is something that apparently the Department of Justice has had a grand jury investigating for quite some time. They had uh, issued subpoenas to various electors who were originally slated to take part in the scheme, but who, for one reason or another, did not. Um, and I think some of those people did so because they knew that it was uh, improper to do so and expose themselves. 
And they have very little on the table. They can testify openly and honestly, even though ideologically uh, they may be, you know, very much in favor of Trump. Nonetheless, um, they risk criminal exposure and they actually, you know, have a lower risk of, of charges. And so they have a lot of, they have, there's a lot of upside for them, very little downside with regard to their participation, right? I mean, someone like Mark Meadows, he doesn't want to participate because he's going to incriminate himself. Cheese bro. Uh, you know, he's going to you know, wind up uh, probably facing charges on this deal, right? And he, by the way, is someone who logically is going to be next with regard to getting subpoenas from the grand jury that's investigating this. So I'd like to move on to this idea that, that Schiff presents that, um, you know, not only were these fake electors not simply, you know, they were presented to the, the electors as... Well, this is just a contingency, or at least to some of them. This is just a contingency. This is a possible defense, right? We only wanted these electors as a contingency. Uh, but Schiff argues that, no, it's, it's not a contingency. Uh, you know, I mean, again, a contingency in case what? In case there is a court challenge that ultimately overturns the election or authorizes uh, the, the state to appoint a new slate of electors, right? You know, supposedly that's why these electors are put in place, a shift shoots that down. You know, these, they continued the effort to deploy these electors even after all the lawsuits were lost. So now I'd like to move on to one of the things that was genuinely new, which is from uh, Rona McDaniel, not Romney. Well, of course, you know, um, this is, of course, the niece of Mitt Romney, who has gone full Trumpist uh, as the head of the RNC. And I don't know why, but she basically totally and completely implicated herself and the RNC during her testimony. So that's new and different. The president said it when he called you. Essentially, he turned the call over to Mr. Eastman, who then proceeded to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather these contingent electors in case any of the legal challenges um, that were ongoing changed the result of any of the states. I think more just helping them reach out and assemble them. But the my understanding is the campaign did take the lead and we just were helping them in that in that role. I think there's actually a very good chance that her understanding of it is going to be proven to be incorrect. You don't file false certificates for uh, slates of contingent electors after you've lost every court case. So what the RNC was doing and what uh, Rona uh, Romney McDaniel was doing was to, in effect, perpetuate and participate in this effort and conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States. So that is a new material and kind of a bombshell. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the press will pick up on that. But gee, the RNC is involved. And again, I pointed to Exhibit 10 in the Vallejo discovery material, which shows that the RNC was involved in every aspect of this plot. So the Republican Party and its national leadership is deeply involved in obstructing the peaceful transfer of power in the 2020 presidential election. 
Next, again, more new and different material that we haven't heard before. Testimony from first Justin Clark, a Trump campaign lawyer, and Matt Morgan, another Trump campaign lawyer, on the wisdom of continuing to pursue this fake elector strategy even after uh, the possibility of these being some kind of contingent electors had been nullified by the fact that they had lost in court 61 times. I just remember, I, I either replied or called somebody saying, unless we have litigation pending that's like in these states, like, I don't think this is appropriate, or you know, this isn't the right thing to do. I don't remember how I phrased it, but um, I got into a little bit of a back and forth, and I think it was with Ken Cheeseboro, um, where I said, all right, you know, you just get after it. Like, I, I'm out. At that point, um, I had Josh Finley email Mr. Chesbro politely to say, this is your task. You are responsible for the Electoral College issues moving forward. And this was my way of taking that responsibility to zero. Now, that latter speaker, of course, was Matt Morgan. That is a bold strategy, right? Saying, well, okay, you handle it, and therefore my responsibility is zero. And that kind of implicates you in a, a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. So delegating this doesn't absolve you in any way of your participation. What you need to say is, this is wrong and I don't want to do it. And there is a question, of course, why people like Justin Clark and Matt Morgan... Uh, again, you know, and we've seen this with Steffi too, right? You know, why these kinds of figures would be cooperating? Well, these are both attorneys in this instance, right? Now, now Stepien, of course, is continuing to get money from MAGA World. And, you know, I'm sure uh, Clark and Morgan probably would like to continue to work in Republican politics as well. But you can't do that if you are disbarred. And so, as attorneys, they face legal sanction. And they are trying to demonstrate that, you know, what they did was in accordance with the law. So they face, you know, perhaps less liability than someone like um, Cheesebro, which, by the way, you'll notice that Clark uh, pronounced it uh, Cheesebro and Morgan pronounced it Chesabro. I'm not sure what's right. Uh, I'm going with Cheesebro just because, you know, I like cheese. I'd like to move on to the next bit of, I thought, rather compelling video evidence. Uh, which is from fake electors and campaign staff uh, talking about their involvement in this game. And, you know, again, overall, I thought this, this particular video pre presentation was really on point. And although, you know, I think the stuff from Moss and Freeman is probably emotively uh, the stuff that's going to make the biggest difference, you know, people are going to be talking about Lady Ruby. Uh, nonetheless, Substantively, legally, especially in light of the subpoenas that have, are being served to these people, this is the testimony that is probably going to matter with regard to what looks like an imminent case of conspiracy to defraud the United States. We were just, you know, kind of, kind of useful idiots or rubes at that point. You know, a strong part of me really feels that it's just kind of as the road continued and as it was failure, 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 that that, that got formulated as what do we have on the table. Um, let's just do it. And, and now after what we've 
you today about the select committee's investigation about the conclusion of the professional lawyers on the campaign staff, Justin Clark, Matt Morgan, and, and Josh Finley, about their um, unwillingness to participate in the convening of these electors. Um, how does that contribute to your understanding of these issues? I'm, I'm angry. I'm angry um, because I think, I think in a sense, you know, no one really cared uh, if if people were potentially putting themselves in jeopardy. Would you have not wanted to participate in this any further as well? I absolutely would not have. And I know that the three main lawyers for the campaign um, that I've spoken to in the past and were leading up were, were not on board. Um, yeah. I was told that these would only count if a court ruled in our favor. So that would have been um, using our electors, um, well, it would have been using our electors in ways that we weren't told about, um, and we wouldn't have supported. Documents obtained by the select committee indicate that instructions were given to the electors in several states that they needed to cast their ballots in complete secrecy. Because this scheme involved fake electors, those participating in certain states had no way to comply with state election laws, like where the electors were supposed to meet. One group of fake electors even considered hiding overnight to ensure that they could access the state capitol, as required in Michigan. Did Mr. Norton say who he was working with at all on this effort to have electors meet? He said he was working with the president's campaign. He told me, Probably was hearing last week, 
And Carmen Hernandez is absolutely convinced. She's, she's the attorney for uh, Philadelphia Proud Boy, Zach Real. Uh, absolutely convinced that the committee is working hand in glove with the Department of Justice because she has a number of misdemeanor defendants who immediately after taking plea deals are contacted by the committee to provide testimony to the committee. So based on that, she believes that the uh, committee and the Department of Justice are acting uh, very closely in cooperation with one another. Now, take it as you will. Uh, I think a lot of these, a lot of these attorney, attorneys in these cases, these January 6th cases, are ideologically motivated rather than necessarily motivated by the best interests of their clients. Um, you know, I would situate uh, Hernandez somewhere in the middle of the spectrum between, let's say, a lot of the public defenders who are really just trying to do good lawyering from the behalf of their clients, and some of the private attorneys I would also put in that category, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the people like the Pierces, uh, who are, you know, just kind of wackadoodles, right? Just, you know, uh, getting disbarred and saying crazy stuff in court, um, you know. Hernandez is, is somewhere in the middle there. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, her theory is that the committee is working rather closely with the Department of Justice. And I think the fact that, gee, we have a, a committee hearing on Tuesday uh, about fake electors, and it shows that there are these fake documents being submitted, uh, including video evidence, by the way, that shows, um, you know, what the fake documents look like and what the real documents look like. Now, I've actually only ever seen the real documents before. Um, and then, of course, you know, last March I saw the, the fake ones. And just putting them side by side in this way, actually, I, it never occurred to me to do that. But yeah, golly gee, these sure look fake. Um, and at one point, you know, if you review the documents, uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, you know, there are a couple of documents that are, are supposed to have been signed by uh, the governors of the state of Georgia and uh, the state of Pennsylvania, uh, and they were not signed by the governors of either state. So why they're submitted, I don't know. And uh, in fact, you know, Tom Wolf is the governor of Pennsylvania as a Democrat. I have no doubt he didn't actually see the thing that he was supposed to sign. And if you look at the upper left-hand corner, the press doesn't has covered this, but you know, I don't know why. There's, there's actually a little bit of script that says letterhead of the governor of Pennsylvania. And it just, that's it. It's not the actual letterhead of the governor of Pennsylvania. It, it just says letterhead of the governor of Pennsylvania. I mean, the level, you know, the, the, these are the worst forgeries in the history of forging things. But again, nonetheless, that's new. That is new, that's different. And the fact that they, you know, we, we, had, we had heard that in various states that they were trying to meet in complete secrecy, you know, the, the testimony about that is new and confirms the fact that, gee, why is this secrecy required? Because what you're doing, in fact, constitutes a criminal conspiracy. And it goes to the, you know, the mens rea, right? You know, it's criminal, so you're doing it in secret. We don't, we don't usually do this in secret. This is not a thing that we do in secret. And again, you know, it shows the intent. It goes to the intent of these fake electors with regard to what they're trying to do. I realize I just played a long recording, so I'm not going to do another one. But another new detail that emerged 
is that Ron Johnson of Wisconsin wanted to hand-deliver fake elector documents to Pence. The fake elector certificates, he wanted to hand-deliver them to Pence. The campaign, and a series of text messages that the committee has, told him no. Because obviously Pence wasn't on board with the fake elector scheme. Uh, and so, you know, handing him those documents wouldn't have done a lot of good. And this secrecy continued. You know, not only did they try to obscure what they were doing uh, from public meeting requirements and sunshine laws and things of that nature, and from the press, right? And, and they went to absurd lengths. I, I won't bother. I mean, there are a number of press stories about this. Um, but, you know, there are members of the press who, who saw, like, these secret meetings occurring, I believe, in Michigan, or maybe it was Georgia, and saying, hey, what's going on? It's like, well, we can't really talk about this. It's like, you know, again... Absolutely, absolutely, sir. It demonstrates the fact that they were aware of that what they were doing was wrong, and more importantly, once they tried to recruit someone like Bowers, um, and they realized that he was going to stand to uphold the rule of law, they decided that they were going to keep these things a secret even from him. Speaker Bowers, were you aware that fake electors had met in Phoenix on December fourteenth and purported to cast electoral votes for President Trump? I was not. So again, that shows you it's down the up and up, right? You know, they were trying to recruit the Speaker of the Arizona State House. Once they failed to recruit him, they decided to proceed with issuing these fake certificates for the you know, uh, electorals, electors, the Trump electors in the state of Arizona without his knowledge. They tried to shield this from the person that they previously attempted to recruit. When you learned that these electors had met and sent their electoral votes to Washington, what did you think? Well, I thought of the book, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, and I just thought, this is a, this is a tragic parody. I, mean, I kind of disagree with Bowers here. I think this gang could shoot straight in any number of ways. It is a tragic parody. I almost considered calling this episode that. Um, but, you know, we came a lot closer, I think, than most people realize. And, you know, I mean, again, Bowers is someone with whom I probably politically don't agree on very much. But I don't want to lionize all these people who are coming forward. But again, it's another example of, you know, this is someone who was, is a lifelong Republican. He was a Republican when Donald Trump was a registered Democrat, which is a point, by the way, I don't think the media makes often enough. Donald Trump was a Democrat for 90% of his life, but somehow uh, the Republican Party has become something that's wholly in the service and enthralled to him. Nonetheless, he has come forward at, to try to do the right thing right now, and I think that when your uh, government is being threatened with a fascist takeover, you know what? You take your allies where you can find them. So, kudos for him. And again, it, this was a new revelation, right? The fact that they tried to recruit him, and then after they realized he wasn't ever going to get on board, they tried to keep uh, what happened next a secret from him. Uh, that's very similar, uh, as we learned, with regard to Ron Johnson and the fake Wisconsin slate of electors uh, with regard to how they handled Vice President Pence.
Next up were Brad Raffensperger, uh, former uh, Secretary of State of Georgia, cur sorry, current Secretary of State of Georgia, and uh, Gabriel Sterling, an official in the Secretary of State's office. And he, they testified basically to the efforts to pressure Raffensperger to try to overturn the election results in Georgia. And, of course, this was the uh, notorious over-an-hour-long, quote, perfect call, right, which was not perfect. It was a, an effort to pressure a state elections official to get the result that the president wanted by the sitting president of the United States, including finding a specific number of 11,000-plus votes in order to, you know, flip the results. One of the interesting things that came out that was genuinely new was that um, there was apparently the effort to, or the idea that uh, Watson, a one of the Georgia investigators looking into the matter, uh, would be bribable, right? That the President of the United States would send them just a, a shitload of POTUS stuff to try to get her to find the result that he wanted. And of course, much of this inquiry revolved around the false allegations of fraud at the uh, State Farm Arena in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Essentially, there is this moment where there are bins, locked bins, secured bins, that contained ballots that were locked away, that, you know, when election workers thought they were going to go home for the night, uh, they stowed them away, and then they were called by state elections officials saying, no, you guys need to you know, stay on the job, don't go home, we won't get these results, keep on counting. And they bring the ballots back up. And this led to the false allegations of suitcases full of ballots that were being brought in when these were purpose-built bins that were normal in that context. So, um, you know, and again, this has already been thoroughly debunked. But one of the things that I'd like to point to is just, you know, there, there, there's some things that election officials know, people who follow elections know uh, more closely than, than, like, regular people. To your regular Trumpist, it is incomprehensible that Trump could have possibly won because every Republican wound up supporting Trump in their own minds. In point of fact, uh, as this the following clip I'm going to play shows, Trump was considerably less popular than down-ballot Republicans. As a matter of fact, many of them had been turned off by Trump and Trumpism. And as a consequence, many of them left their ballots blank. And Brad Raffensperger, of course, who's looked into this matter very closely as the Secretary of State of Georgia, uh, knows this and testified to this to the committee. Mr. Raffensperger, I know you weren't on this call, but uh, but that you have listened to it. President Trump didn't win by hundreds of thousands of votes in Georgia, did he? No, he did not. Uh, I've been traveling through the state of Georgia for a year now, and uh, simply put, in a nutshell, what happened in fall of 2020 is that 28,000 Georgians skipped the presidential race, and yet they voted down ballot in other races. And the Republican congressman ended up getting 33,000 more votes than President Trump. And that's why President Trump came up short. Now, I, I think Raffensperger uh, 
is his selling point. Trump lost Georgia in part because of a massive grassroots effort to get out Democratic voters in Georgia. But nonetheless, his point is well taken. Trump was less popular in Georgia than other down-ballot Republican races. And this is actually consistent with patterns in other races. If Trump was less, you know, so much more popular nationally than Republicans, Republicans, generic congressional Republicans, Congress wouldn't be so nearly divided right now. Um, but in point of fact, the reason why Trump winds up underperforming is precisely because he, some of the Republican voters, uh, rather than voting for Biden, uh, which would probably be preferable, decide to simply leave their presidential choice blank. And in Georgia, according to Ravensburger, this winds up being in excess of the margin. And much of these theories rely on ignorance. Ignorance on the part of ordinary people, I suppose, with regard to elections processes, right? These, uh, you know, undervotes in, in the instance of these voters who decided not to vote for Trump uh, while voting perhaps even straight ticket Republican on the rest of the ballot. And the distinction between ballot carriers and uh, these so-called suitcases. Now, Fulton County, Georgia, was at the time under a consent decree, which it, at the time I personally thought was extremely suspicious. This consent decree basically handed over the administration of uh, the election in Fulton County to state-level officials, rather than local officials who are Democrats. So, you know, at the time, I personally believe that Raffensperger did that to put his thumb on the scale. But in the end, he wound up adjudicating the matter fairly. With regard to uh, State Farm Arena, Trump winds up claiming that there was a minimum of 18,000 votes in one particular ballot carrier, which he calls a suitcase, that were, quote, all for Biden. Uh, Gabriel Sterling noted that that wasn't true, and uh, there's not even any way to know who those ballots were for, but again, these were ordinary, perfect, you know, ballots that were, again, just part of the tallying of the votes. Another one of the new things that we found was the allegation put forward by Adam Schiff that there were text messages indicating that Mark Meadows wanted to send some of the investigators to enter office in the words of one White House aide, quote, a shitload of POTUS stuff, including coins, actual autograph MAGA hats, etc. So they were attempting to bribe Watson, a state investigator, to find what they wanted to find and through basically like, you know, presidential swag, which is absolutely ridiculous. And Raffensperger and Sterling spent a lot of time debunking the various claims about uh, so-called election fraud in Georgia. Um, I won't play, play the clip, I'll just read it this time. When it came to uh, the Trump's challenges in Georgia, uh, Schiff asked him, is it, quote, is it somehow explained away as a miscalculation? Raffensperger responded, no, the numbers are the numbers. The numbers don't lie. 
We had many allegations and we investigated every single one of them. In fact, I challenged my team. Did we miss anything? They said that there were over 66,000 underage voters. We found there was actually zero. You can register to vote in Georgia when you're 17 and a half. You have to be 18 by election day. We checked that out. Every single voter. They said there was 2,423 non-registered voters. There were zero. They said that there were 2,056 felons. We identified less than 74 that were actually still on a felony sentence. Every single allegation we checked, we ran down the rabbit trail to make sure that our numbers were accurate. End quote. So, again, pretty much thoroughly debunked all those claims. And, of course, once again, there are claims that, you know, not claims, right? Raffensperger winds up suffering fraud. Fraud. He winds up suffering uh, death threats, right? There are very specific threats of, uh, you know, death and sexual violence regarding his wife. And just the most despicable kinds of conduct, again, due to these false allegations leveled against him by Trump and his supporters. Now I'll move on uh, before we conclude to the testimony of Shea Moss. Again, I thought her testimony was extremely effective emotively. Uh, she showed that basically the President of the United States and Rudy Giuliani took her on and leveled false accusations against her and her mother and essentially named her by name and exposed her to the danger of being attacked by mobs of violent Trumpists. Now, interestingly, there has been an ongoing civil suit in this case. Um, Moss and her mother, Freeman, filed a civil suit against Giuliani and OAN, the far-right network. Now, OAN has settled. And not only that, have they settled, they have actually issued a retraction in the case, uh, saying that, no, we were wrong. Moss and Freeman did nothing wrong. These are unsubstantiated claims, and they have paid, presumably, some undisclosed amount. So, uh, amongst the defendants in the civil suit, it's just Giuliani, right? Now, Giuliani is reportedly worth $40 million. Hopefully, um, you know... Lady Ruby and her daughter, uh, Shea Moss, are, are going to get some of that because this suit is ongoing. It's going to be tried in D.C. And I don't think Giuliani has much of a defense. Here, I'll get to what Giuliani actually said. And, you know, it's pretty repugnant. Tape earlier in the day, Ruby Freeman and Shea Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously, surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they're engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. And after a week ago, they're still walking around Georgia lying. Should have been, they should have been, uh, should have been questioned already. Uh, their place of work their homes should have been searched for evidence of ballots, for evidence of USB ports, for evidence of voter fraud, 
As it turns out, of course, this suspected USB... By the way, Giuliani calls it a USB port. Like, I don't know how you hand a USB port to somebody, right? I mean, so he doesn't even know what the hell he's talking about, right? So the USB port is the thing that, let's say, you know, like, you're going to stick some USB connection into, right? So he's talking about a flash drive, but he doesn't know what he's... Even, anyway. Um, so it turns out, of course, this was actually a ginger mint. But, you know, the su supposed surreptitious activity, he names them by name. Um, and, again, there's an ongoing civil suit, and I think they don't talk about that very much. They don't actually mention the fact that OAN has already settled, for example, which I think would have been a useful thing to include. Nonetheless, um, yeah, you know, so whatever Rudy Giuliani is worth, Kind of like Alex Jones, maybe he'll try to go down the bankruptcy route. Good luck with that. Um, but they are going to wind up getting a pretty big chunk of that. Because you know, winds up having like people, you know, trying to knock down their doors and conduct citizens' arrests. I mean, it's just absolutely outrageous. And part of what's outrageous here, and this doesn't make the government look great, is that the FBI told Moss and her mother to leave her home in advance of January 6th. So the FBI knew that they were in danger, but somehow, I don't know, they didn't tell Congress, right? Nor did they, for example, provide protection for these innocent women who are doing their civic duty and just, you know, trying to, to, to work for a living during an election year. I mean, just absolutely insane. Or, for that matter, the state of Georgia, the Georgia State Police, could have provided some protection, uh, you know, because at this point, I mean, it just documented that they were under threat, but no one seemed to help them out. Um, another interesting tidbit was that all the election workers who were depicted in the video that Giuliani used to fraudulently uh, attempt to show uh, election fraud, uh, every single one of them, according to Shea Moss, has actually left. So that was pretty telling as well. All right. So ahead of the, these hearings that are upcoming, I guess, today, on Thursday, uh, there's going to be more testimony from Barr. There's going to be more testimony from Rosen. Um, the interesting part that I think at the end of the committee that seemed pretty telling to me was that uh, the, the committee openly invited testimony from Pat Cipollone, White House counsel, and they, they're calling for him to appear and say what he knows. We know that Cipollone threatened to resign over the you know, absurdities of the January 6th stuff, right? Over these efforts to, to get, uh, for example, Jeff Rosen to resign, to, to have Jeff Clark uh, stand in his stead. You know, they played the, te the testimony from Jared Kushner twice in that regard. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know what Cipollone is holding out for. Um, presumably, if it's important enough to resign your job, you, you might want to testify. I mean, he is an attorney, after all. So, we'll see. Uh, again, look forward to the testimony in the uh, case, sorry, in the hearing that is going to be occurring 
later on today. Um, but I think that probably the most significant event actually occurred outside the hearing on Tuesday, when, again, on Wednesday, we had multiple fake electors served. So further evidence, I think, of the fact that the committee and the Department of Justice are operating in tandem. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, again for listening. I hope that you enjoy the hearing. Uh, if you can, you can listen to it uh, live, of course, on television, or you can listen to it or watch it on C-SPAN. And, of course, as always, there will be transcripts transcribed by CQ, Congressional Quarterly, um, and put up uh, on NPR. So, thank you so much. I will try to put out another one of these episodes in response to the uh, the next hearing. Now, the next series of hearings, by the way, are have actually been delayed. Um, Benny Thompson has said that, for some reason, um, the next hearings are going to occur in July. So, they've had some flexibility. Personally, I think this is, this is because there's some stuff going on, right? I think at this point, there are various witnesses who are coming forward, and also, uh, you've got various things going on at the Department of Justice. I think that they are rolling up these fake electors, and we're going to see more developments uh, coming, even though the next hearings, uh, after tomorrow's hearing, or Thursday's hearing, uh, you know, won't be until July. So until sometime I, this weekend, again, I'm Scott Kuhn. Thank you so much.